Well, it really is an honor to be back with you all again today. I appreciate the continued opportunities you give me to come back to the passages in John and to preach messages here. I've been particularly excited about this passage because the first time I preached through John chapter 3, I went through verse, uh, verses 1 all the way through verse 21 in one message, and it was just way too much for one message. And so ever since then, I've been wanting to come back to it and have the opportunity to dig into it a little bit more and to preach through it again. And so I'm delighted that we're going to be able to get through verses 16 through 21 today as we looked at verses 1 through 15 the last time I was here. And John 3.16 is such a beloved verse for so many people and for good reason. But I have to say, I didn't really appreciate John 3.16 for what it really is until I was studying to preach through it. There's so much richness, there's so much depth in that verse and its context um, that I'm delighted to be able to share with all of you today. So let's go ahead and read our text. Again, that's John 3, verses 16 through 21. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this text. We're so grateful for the simple truths of salvation that you unfold for us in John chapter 3. And Lord, I ask that we would come away from this text humbled by the gospel, that we would leave this text astounded by what you've provided for us through your Son, in spite of who we are. And Lord, we would ask that we would be motivated to go from here as a shining light for the truth that you have planted within us. We ask that you would help us to focus our minds on this text this morning. I ask that you would grant me um, clarity of speech as we go through this text, and that you would be glorified by all that is said in this message. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to quickly just take a moment and remind us all where we're at in John's gospel and in Jesus' ministry more broadly. We know that he is in Jerusalem celebrating the first Passover feast with his disciples. We know he's caused quite a commotion by cleansing the temple and then cleansing the temple, drawing great attraction to himself and then furthering that attraction by performing signs and wonders. We read about that at the end of chapter 2. And we know that there are many people who seem to believe in Jesus because of these signs and because of all the attention Jesus was drawing to himself. But the end of John 2 tells us that these were counterfeit believers. These were people who gave lip service to believing in Jesus but did not actually truly believe. And then we read in chapter 3 that a representative of that group of false believers, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night to try to understand who is this teacher, who is this radical who is cleansing the temple and yet has signs that can only come from God. And in verses 1 through 15, Jesus unfolded for Nicodemus the truth that in order to enter into God's kingdom, you must be born again. 
And this was a shocking truth for Nicodemus because Jesus is telling him, you cannot do anything to enter God's kingdom. You cannot make yourself worthy. You have to be blessed with something from outside of yourself in order to be welcomed into God's kingdom. And it was a mind-blowing truth for Nicodemus. It was hard for him to wrap his mind around. And now, as we come to verses 16 through 21, there's some debate as to whether or not this is Jesus continuing to speak to Nicodemus or if this is the Apostle John editorializing and building upon what Jesus already said. I have an opinion, but I don't think it really matters. God wrote all the Bible. He put all the verses together exactly as he did for a reason. And he put these verses right here to help deepen our understanding of what Jesus is teaching in this passage about being born again, about believing, about being made alive in Christ. And I also want to address uh, an apparent tension in this text. Verses 1 through 13 heavily focus on God's role in salvation and that he is, in fact, sovereign over every soul that is saved. We see that from the illustration of being born again. Just like we said last time, no human can cause themselves to be born. No, one, no human being plays a role in their own birth. It is the work of the mother. So, too, pre- people who are born again spiritually are not born of their own power, their own will, their own ability. They're born from above, born by God's power, born through the Spirit from outside of themselves. And so God is sovereign over every soul that is saved. And then as we go through our text today, we're going to see the theme of belief or human responsibility, and that although God is sovereign over salvation, he requires human beings to believe. And he also holds those who do not believe responsible for their unbelief. And it can seem unfair. It can seem as though God is unjust for holding people accountable for something that he is sovereign over. And I want to tell you, it's difficult to untangle all these truths from each other, but they're both true. God is sovereign, and man is responsible to believe. And I believe that God put these verses next to each other to display those truths side by side, not to confuse us, but to show us that both are equally true in salvation. God is sovereign, and you must believe. And if you do not believe, God is just to hold you accountable for your unbelief. So now let's go ahead and get into our text. I believe the central theme of our text today is that humanity can escape eternal judgment and live a life of confident service for God. I don't think anything I'm going to say is going to be new for anyone here. I think you've all heard this probably many times before. But as we come back to the simple gospel message that John gives us again and again and again, I think we can understand that understanding the gospel message again and again and again is what John wants us to do. He wants us to come back to it over and over and over again, to see it from different angles, different perspectives, to understand it's significant in new lights and new ways. And to know God is to know his salvation that he has made available for us. So it's never wasted time to study the simple gospel truths that we read about in John. So let's dive in there in verse 16. And I think for the first point we'll see from this text is that salvation, again, is wholly a work of God. And the first aspect is that it's a work of God because salvation is sourced in his unmerited love for humanity. We see that right at the beginning of verse 16. For God so loved the world. When I was a kid and I memorized John 3.16, I could say it so fast you couldn't even understand what I was saying. 
I was thinking about it this morning. I don't even remember a time in my life when I didn't know John 3.16. Like, I don't remember memorizing that verse. It's just always been in my head. And because that's true, I just breeze right through it and don't even think about it. But if you let those first words hit you in the context of what we've already learned in chapter 3, God's love is truly astounding, is it not? Jesus has just spoken about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And in their complaining and their grumbling, God provided a salvation from their punishment, the fiery serpents that he sent. God provided a, a way to escape those through the snake being lifted up on a pole. And that is what the Son of Man is going to come to do as well. And the Son of Man is coming to deliver people who, as we're going to learn throughout this text, are enemies of God. And the love of God, then, is something that we could never deserve, never earn. We're not so attractive to God that he loved us. The verse doesn't say that because human beings are so amazing, God loved the world. The verse doesn't say that because God was lonely, he loved human beings. It just says that God so loved the world as it was. Broken, fallen, sinful, and corrupted. And we know that Because God loves us, we have the opportunity to love him in return. And it's only through loving and serving Christ that we can find true fulfillment and happiness and purpose for our lives. 1 John reminds us that we love him, meaning God, because he first loved us. And so this is the aspect that this text shows us of how God is sovereign over salvation. His love is what causes the process to start. If God did not first love us, There would be no chance of us loving him in return. It would be hopeless. We would never have even the thought of loving God if he did not first love us. God's love is what starts the whole process of our salvation, and without it, we would be completely lost. And God's gift of love results in another gift. And I want you to think now about the greatest gifts you've received, like physical gifts, not spiritual gifts, things that that your spouse gives you, that your friends and family give you. And when I think about all the the wonderful gifts that I've been given, I I try to think about, well, why do I like those gifts? Why do they mean so much to me? And what it usually comes down to is those gifts make me feel good about myself. When someone goes through all the effort to think about me, to think about my needs, to think about what I might want, and then actually get me that thing that meets my needs, that is what I want, it makes me feel special. It makes me feel like that person really cares about me. That's how we understand gifts. But God's love resulted in a gift that does not even fit into that picture at all. God's love is demonstrated by his gift. We see that as we continue in verse 16, that he gave his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, when we understand that we did not deserve God's love, when we understand that we were enemies of God, corrupt, not deserving of his love, we understand that this gift is not something that we've earned, not something that we've deserved, but it's simply God's choice to give it. And when we understand it in the context of verses 14 and 15, I'll read verse 14 quickly. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That verse is telling us that the only sacrifice that would be acceptable, the only gift that we really needed, was the Son of Man. Nothing else would do. 
Nothing else would be a proper object for our belief. But God so loved the world, and he gave his son. If God did not choose to give us his son, again, we would have no hope of salvation. Salvation is a work of God because it starts with God's love, and God's love resulted in God's giving us the only gift that we ever really needed. So when we're tempted to be prideful about our salvation, when we're tempted to be prideful of our relationship with God, we need to remember that we had nothing to do with where it began. God loved us when we were unlovable. God gave us a gift that we could never deserve. Even after we believe, we still don't deserve that gift. We will never measure up to the gift that we've been given. And so when we come to a passage like John 3.16, Simple as the truths are, it should continually wash over us anew that God loved us when we were sinners, when we were so disgusting and putrid to him in our sin that we would not be attractive at all. And yet he gave us his son. He gave us what was so precious that we can't even describe how precious God is, how precious Jesus is. He gave us the greatest gift that could ever be given when we least deserved it. Salvation begins and ends with God. Now this wonderful gift that's been given to us is, ex- is accessible exclusively by belief in the Son. That's our next main point today. And it's plainly obvious from the end of verse 16 on through verse 18. And there's a few aspects for us to unpack here as well. First of all, the natural condition of humanity is spiritual death. It's hinted at there in verse 16 when it says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, if to believe in Jesus is to not perish, to not believe in Jesus is to perish. You have to ask yourself, what does John mean when he says perish? You get a glimpse of that when you read the end of Revelation. To perish is to be separated in eternity from God burning in hell. That is what John means when he says perish. And that is the fate that awaits everyone who does not believe. That is the natural condition of humanity. There is no fence sitting. So many people seem to want to say, hey, you know, I'm glad that your religion works for you. I'm glad that church works for you. I'm not really about that. I'm also not really about hell, but I'm just going to hang out right in the middle. These verses completely undercut that position. There is no founding in that at all. To not believe is to perish. We see it even more clearly there in verse 18. John says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're already condemned. Before you die, if you choose not to believe, you are already condemned. Your natural condition is that of condemnation before God Almighty in eternity. Verse 18 is using some legal language that begins in verse 17. Verse 17 sounds like good news. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's good news, right? But why did Jesus not come to the world to condemn the world? He didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. He didn't need to condemn that for which the sentence has already been handed down. We are all guilty naturally. Jesus didn't come to condemn the reason he didn't come to condemn was because he came to provide something different than we already had. We already had condemnation. He came to provide a different path 
something that's wonderful, something that leads us away from eternal perishing. And that's the second aspect of this point, is it not? If anyone believes in the Son, they will receive eternal life. It's such a simple gospel truth. All that is required of us is belief. Nicodemus was looking for boxes to check off. He was looking for tasks to complete. He was looking for good works to accomplish. And Jesus gave him the news that he couldn't do anything to make himself alive spiritually. And these verses teach us that God doesn't want anything from us. He wants us to believe. He just wants us to believe. And I think there's a few aspects of God's provision here that are apparent in this text. First of all, the provision of salvation is all-sufficient. And I know some people will disagree with me on this point, but I think these verses clearly demonstrate that God's gift of his Son was for everyone. It says, God so loved the world. Uh, My understanding of of the Greek word that's translated world here is the sum total of everything in the here and now. God loves the world. He loves the world and everything in it and everyone in it. And in the immediate context of John's gospel, this means that God's love extended beyond the people, the Jewish nation. And in our context, we understand that that God's love extends to the world as a whole. And so when he loved the world, he provided his son for the world. It is an all-sufficient sacrifice. Anyone can receive it. It is available to all. It's a well-meant offer to the entire world, to the entire human race. I think it's further demonstrated in the repetition of the word whoever. Verse 15 and verse 16 use one form of the word whoever, and verse 18 contains um, two instances of a different form. And in my mind, translating these as non-restrictive pronouns is, is what makes the most sense. Just as whoever does not believe is condemned, whoever does believe is made alive. That's available to all, just as condemnation is the natural fate of everyone aside from, apart from, belief. God, in his divine love and sovereignty, has made a sacrifice available that is sufficient for anyone and everyone. All people can believe. But as we already said, not everyone does. And that's the next next aspect of this point. While the provision of salvation is universal, the application is limited exclusively to those who believe. And we see that there in verse 18 when it says, He who believes is not judged, but he who does not believe is condemned already. If you don't believe, there is no salvation in your life. Now, the way I've been thinking about this this week is when Kenzie and I were registering for our wedding, it was kind of a fun time. It's like going shopping without spending any money. And I didn't, I didn't really have all that many opinions, and I realized that Kenzie was involving me in the process, not because she was really interested in what I had to say, but she was just trying to be nice. And it's, and it's, and it's good. 
It's the way it should have been because I don't research stuff like Kenzie researched. I mean, she's looking through reviews. She's checking like three pages of reviews to be like, oh, no, this pers one person said that it cracked after three years, so we probably better not register for that one. We should register for this one. And I'm like, great. We're getting a lot better stuff because she's, she's working on it. She's on it. But there was one thing that I absolutely had to have, and I put my, my soon-to-be husbandly authority on that point. We were going to get a mandolin. Not the instrument, the kitchen, the kitchen gadget where you can slice stuff really fast. I wanted one of those things for so long. And Kenzie was, she protested a lot at first, okay? And I think, you know, we were spending a lot of time holding hands at that point in our relationship. And so she's seeing all these scars all over my fingers from different run-ins I had with sharp objects. And she's thinking, a mandolin, really? Um, so she said, okay, we'll register for this mandolin if you also agree to register for some cut-proof gloves to go along with the mandolin. I'm like, whatever I got to do to get this, fine. So we registered for both cut-proof gloves and a mandolin. And we got both of them. It was amazing. It was meant to be. And so... Well, soon after we get married, I'm like, I've got to prove to her that this was a good use of a wedding registry item. So I'm like, let's, let's slice everything with the mandolin. And I'm trying to just, any excuse I have to show her how good I was at using the mandolin, I was taking all advantage of it, right? But here's the thing. I didn't believe that the cut-proof gloves were necessary. I believed that I was above such things. I wanted to show her that I, didn't, I had grown and matured. I was a, I was a husband now. I'm not going to cut my fingers, right? So those cut-proof gloves were sitting in the drawer, in the kitchen, available anytime I used the mandolin. Every time. They were right there. All I had to do was put them on. That's all that was required of me to have the protection of the cut-proof gloves. But I was too good for it. And even, even more than that, I was too good for the little guard that you stab the vegetables with. You know what I'm talking about? You stab the vegetables, and then you're supposed to like, have your fingers protected as you're slicing it down. I was too good for that, too. I'm just barehanding it with those vegetables all day. And the bad thing is, I was right for a little while. I used it so many times, and I didn't get hurt. I was slicing tomatoes. I was slicing potatoes. It was great. Until one Sunday afternoon, I was slicing cucumbers. My hand slipped. I don't really even know what happened. My hand slipped, and in a half a second, I was a believer in cut-proof gloves. <laughs> Big time. Especially after we got the bill from the visit to the ER. Right? Three stitches, one through my fingernail. I was wearing the end of my finger like a top hat. Okay? I believed in cut-proof gloves after I saw how necessary it was. I got a second chance. And the reason why I use this as an illustration is because the gloves were free. I didn't have to do anything. They were right there. All I had to do was believe it was necessary and put the stupid gloves on. And I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't even use the guard. That's how stubborn I was. And I think that that same stubborn arrogance is what is emblematic of so many people who refuse to believe in Jesus and to have that salvation applied to them. That's the same kind of attitude that they have. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I don't need to be saved. I don't need to believe. I have got a different path for my life. You don't understand me. God doesn't understand me. If he understood me, he would know that I don't need Jesus. But unlike me, when you reject Jesus, you do not get 
a second chance. After you die, that is it. And all that awaits you is condemnation. Why would anyone turn away from such a great gift, such a free provision? Our text gives us the answer. This is where we'll see our next main point today. God's gift of salvation shines a dividing light upon all humanity. We're going to see this in verses 19 through 21. Why is it that the gospel message is such a divisive issue in our society today? Why is it that churches like this one are considered hate groups by so many people for simply quoting the Bible, for, for simply standing upon biblical principles? Why is it that so many people want to label Jesus a hateful figure in the past? Why is it that our Lord said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why is that the case? Our text gives us the answer. You see, so many people love the message of God's love for the world. People want to quote John 3.16 because it sounds so fantastic. It sounds so beautiful. It sounds so wonderful. They want the God of John 3.16, but not the, the God of John 3.18. Not the God who condemns everyone who does not believe. Not the God who condemns all people who will not accept his free gift. And that's what John pivots to in these closing verses. Look first at verse 19. And this is the judgment. This is how it works out. This is what John's saying. God has made this gift available. It's free. It's a provision. It's for all people. But this is the judgment. This is how it really plays out. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. I believe in these verses we're going to get an unfolding of of the human condition of total depravity. I think that's what we see in these verses. And the first aspect of that is that this rejection of Christ springs from a love of wickedness. So this is the human condition. First of all, we are naturally condemned. Second of all, we naturally love darkness rather than light. We're naturally disposed to be against God. Why? Verse 19 goes on to give the answer, because their works were evil. So here's the picture. God extends the possibility of salvation to all of humanity, and yet the majority of humanity will choose to reject God because they love their wicked works. Where do these wicked works come from? What are they? They are Satan's cheap trinkets, that he holds out to allure and entice people away from the light. Satan is selling the lie to the entirety of humanity that if you follow God, you'll have less fun than if you follow your own wicked desires. And so people fall into a lifestyle where they pursue that which makes them happy in the moment, in the here and now. And because they believe the lie of Satan, they run away from God towards eternal damnation because they believe they're chasing after happiness. 
they love the wickedness. They love their wicked works. And I might add, so did every single person here. All of us, at one point in our life, were running away from God. We're naturally and predisposed to be God's enemy, pursuing and doing the works that God calls evil and wicked. That's where we all were. And that leads us then into verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. So not only are human beings naturally condemned, not only do we naturally pursue wickedness, not only do we do the works that God hates, we then hate God. That is our natural condition. We do not want to serve God. We want to do our own works, and we hate God. We're his enemy. We are outright, in outright rebellion against our God. Why? Because God's standards, God's morality, God's gift of salvation threatens their current course of action. God demands change. When you believe, you will be changed and you will not be journeying in the same direction anymore. And so people feel threatened by religion. They feel threatened by the gospel because it condemns where they're at right now. People don't want to be told that their works are evil. People don't want to be told that every step they take away from God is a step towards hell. People do not want to hear that message. They only want to hear that God loves the world. And so we see the natural condition of total depravity. No human being would come to God if he did not cause it to happen. And that is where the beauty of those first 15 verses comes, that God, in his love, in his mercy, makes people alive, people who are dead. He calls them away from their pursuit of hell into the pursuit of the light and truth. What does this look like in our lives? The example that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about this was my first job. I worked at the grocery store in Spring Valley, and I went in there as a very homeschooled, very naive 16-year-old. And, I mean, I was well-churched in my upbringing, so I didn't look anything or didn't look or sound anything like the majority of my coworkers. And it was pretty hard to make friends with people that you'd look and sound nothing like. The morality that my family had raised me with was convicting and condemning for the people who were living in sin. And so there was a a spiritual warfare that ensued that I wasn't even aware of. The darkness around me was trying to snuff out the light that was within me because it was convicting everyone who was around me. And it's hard to be isolated. It's hard to be the only person trying to stand up for what's right in a situation like that. And to my shame... I completely gave in. In my time that I was working there over the course of a couple years, I became like the most foul-mouthed, the most perverted person in that entire store. And I led everybody else to do the same thing because I wanted to fit in. I didn't like sticking out. I didn't like being the sore thumb. I wanted to be accepted. But by God's grace, there was a few things that I wouldn't do. I wouldn't 
go out and party with them. I wouldn't go smoking. I wouldn't go do drugs with the rest of my coworkers or anything like that. And it was those sticking points that became the conflicts between my coworkers and myself. It was those, those vestiges of the light within me that they were fighting against and fighting against because even my rejection of some of the, the more severe things they were doing was convicting to them. They wanted me to be wholly given over to the darkness that they were pursuing. And that's kind of a microcosm of what's happening on our, in, the, in, in the grander stage of our culture, is it not? The darkness is threatened by the light and the gospel of God's true church. And so the world has made us their enemy because we convict them by our lives, by our gospel preaching and teaching. We convict the world around us, and so they are on attack against God's church wherever they have the opportunity. And in times like this, it's, it's very easy to be discouraged because we see again and again Christian leaders doing what I did, giving in, turning away from the gospel, watering things down, turning down the brightness of the light to not step on people's toes. And when we see this happening again and again and again, it can be very discouraging. And the temptation at that point is for churches like this one and believers to start to isolate to start to circle the wagons and to protect ourselves and to not want to stick out, to not want to, to, not want to preach the gospel as boldly, to just isolate so that we don't get our heads taken off, right? But that's not what this, this passage teaches us to do. Let's look at verse 21. Verse 21 tells us what we ought to do. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those who truly believe ought to live confidently in the light of the truth. When you consider all the truths of the gospel that have been unfolded so far in this text, doing anything else should be unthinkable. You were once opposed to God, God's enemy, running away from him, doing works of wickedness, pursuing that which God hates, and he called you out of that life into his light. And so to then, in turn, hide that, to isolate, to turn the brightness down, to not stand out boldly, to be afraid of being noticed as being different, should be unthinkable. You've been set in a new direction. You've been given a new purpose, a new meaning for your life. The gospel. And if you pursue anything else, if you don't stick out for the gospel, you're wasting your potential. People should be able to tell the difference between you and someone who is pursuing darkness. We should stick out at our jobs. We should stick out from our unbelieving family members. We ought to be different. We're going to get more into this tonight, um, but I believe this chapter gives us an example, a positive example and a negative example. Nicodemus is the negative example. He's a man who's curious about the light, but he comes to investigate the light under cover of darkness. He doesn't want to stick out from his crowd in the Sanhedrin. He doesn't want to be ostracized from his people. And then at the end of the chapter, we have John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist say? Look at verses 33 through 35. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John the Baptist is just repeating those simple gospel truths to anyone and everyone who would hear. And he was hated by the religious elite. He was hated by the political elite of his day because he stuck out. He was obviously different. And he was obviously pursuing something else with his life. He came and ministered in the light. His works demonstrated that he was a follower of Christ, clearly. That's what the end of verse 21 says ought to be our goal. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That is our goal, that we would stick out, that we would be different because the gospel gives us no other option. We should desire to be different. How do we apply this passage? First of all, if anyone is currently, presently, pursuing after darkness, has not been made alive, has not believed, you know where you are heading. You know that you stand condemned. But the good news is, God has made a pardon available for you, for everyone. And all you need to do is believe and receive. Now to believers, you have been given eternal life. You were loved when you deserved nothing but condemnation. You were called out from a path that would lead to your eternal condemnation. God made you alive. He's filled you with his spirit. What will you do with that? Will you be like Nicodemus? Will you come to church on Sunday and and fellowship with other believers and then return home and hide until the next Sunday when you can be back with your people? Hide until no one is going to be upset at you for sticking out for the gospel? Or will you live like John the Baptist? Will you make a statement that you have been made alive in Christ and you are not ashamed of the gospel? You are not ashamed that you live differently, that you have different desires, different motives. Or will you be like I was? Will you be afraid that people aren't going to like you, that you might get called out that you might not have very many friends. This made me think of this week as, as something that Kenzie always liked to talk about from her first trip to Africa. She said that when she would go to the bathroom at night, you had to take a flashlight with you to shine on the toilet seat to get rid of all the cockroaches. And light certainly has that effect. It drives away wickedness. It drives away that which is undesirable. But light also has the function of being a beacon and calling other people to the truth. That ought to be your desire. You see, in God's plan of salvation, he uses believers to draw other people into the gospel message. And if you choose to turn the brightness down in your life, if you choose to skirt along the edge of the darkness and the light, you will not be the shining beacon that draws other people to Christ. 
Can I challenge you today to live a life like John the Baptist? Be bold in your faith. Declare your faith proudly. Not pride in yourself, but in Christ. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the only hope those that are dying have to be made alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gospel truths that we read in John 3. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be motivated to serve you here, but also to stand out in our communities as a bright example of the gospel, of your grace, of the life that you have given us through your spirit. Lord, help us to find opportunities throughout our week with our family to teach and preach this gospel message to them. We ask that you would give us courage and boldness, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.